We'll worship our God now in the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word. And you can see in your bulletin that we're turning to the final chapter in Romans. We are going to focus our attention on verse 20, the first part of it. I'll read verses 17 through 20. And if it helps, it's printed right there in your bulletin. So after this long, glorious letter to the Christians in Rome, in which Paul has had much to say about the gospel of God's grace and the realization of God's purposes, as the letter is winding to a close and before he begins to give personal greetings, he writes this. So Romans 16 Beginning at verse 17, hear now the word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, They deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his great letter to the Romans. And now we would hear your voice speaking to us by these words. Help us to understand. Grant us eyes to behold. Give us ears to hear. That we might then rise up and walk by faith and not by sight. Our faith is in Christ, and our prayer is in his name. Amen. Last Sunday, we focused our attention on a verse in 1 John. Listen to it again to be reminded or to hear it in case you weren't with us last Sunday. 1 John 3 verse 8 says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so that made for our somewhat surprising Christmas sermon last Sunday. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, the Son of God came into the world. And he was born and he lived and he died and he was raised in the world in order to destroy sin and misery and death and hell for the elect of God. That's what we focused on last time. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, one of the things that we considered last Sunday when we focused on that is that we've got to look all the way to the end of the age. 
all the way to the day when Jesus comes back, if we're going to see that reason for his appearing realized. It's true we do need to look back to what Jesus did on the cross. And it's true we do need to look up and behold Jesus reigning right now at the Father's right hand. But we also need to look forward, and I mean all the way forward, to the last day. Well, Romans 16, verse 20, takes us there. Romans 16, verse 20, the first part of this verse, which is what we're focusing on today, takes us all the way to the end of this age, to the day when Christ is going to come back. And it pronounces in rather dramatic terms what God is going to do on that day, where history is headed. And I would say memorizing this one sentence at the beginning of Romans 16.20 that we're about to unpack, that would not be a bad way of bidding farewell to 2023 and ringing in 2024. Here we are gathering this morning on New Year's Eve. And I wonder what you're looking forward to in the future. What is your heart aching for in days to come as we're about to turn the calendar and turn our attention to another year? What are you looking forward to? What are you aching for? It runs a lot deeper than events that are now on the family calendar for the year ahead. Runs a lot deeper than Birthdays and anniversaries and milestones and vacations that you're anticipating in 2024. What are you really looking forward to in order to know true, deep peace? What are you aching for? What has to happen? What does God in his might and mercy have to do? For you finally, lastingly, to be satisfied. Well, Romans 16 verse 20 shed some light on that. On what God is going to do. On what we are expecting, even longing for him to do. In his good time. Now, just like our verse Last week in 1 John 3, it's also true this week, in the case of Romans 16, verse 20, you can't help but notice the context around it. So so you look on either side of this one verse, verse 20, and when you do that, it's not hard to feel, at least at first glance, that this sentence at the beginning of verse 20 comes out of nowhere. Listen again to what Paul says in the verses leading up to it. And what he's saying has to do with the presence of hypocrites and false teachers in the church. And he wants to warn them about that, right? Look again at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. 
For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. So he's talking to them there about life in the church, in the church. And he's warning the Roman Christians to be on their guard. And then, after saying those things, in the very next breath he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Where did that come from? And then right after that, he's back to the sorts of things that you expect Paul to say near the end of one of his letters. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then right after that, he starts naming names. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. And he goes on. And in the middle of all of that, where did this come from? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean this thundering promise about the end of time. Well, it might be that Paul was simply saying something very new and different in verse 20. That was his right. That was his prerogative as an apostolic writer. doesn't have to be the case that there's a connection between this verse and the verses before it. But if you look at those verses, if you stop and think about them, you can see a connection after all. I mean, think again about these hypocrites and false teachers that Paul warns them about in verses 17 through 19. Look again at what Paul says about these people, what they're like, what they're doing, what they're doing in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not people who are unwittingly teaching slightly mistaken things. These are people who are causing divisions among the people of Christ. These are folks who are putting up obstacles to believing the true gospel of Christ. Ultimately, they're serving themselves instead of Christ. And they're doing that by any means necessary. And so Paul talks about smooth talk, flattery, and deception. And isn't that last one especially chilling? Deception. Paul is saying that these people are deceivers. And that rings an ominous bell, doesn't it? To be characterized as a deceiver of the people of God. Who does that remind you of? Who does that sound like? There is something positively satanic about what these people are doing in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that bad. And because it is that bad, well, then it makes perfect sense, reassuring sense, that in the very next breath, Paul should say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's Paul's way of saying, I know you've got to deal with this sort of thing now. I know it's hard to have to be on your guard like this now against hypocrites and false teachers. But Paul's saying, take heart. It's not always going to be like this. It's not going to be like this forever. Take heart. A day is coming, Paul is saying, when all of that is going to be crushed. A day is coming when the one who fathered all of that, he himself is going to be crushed. By your God. 
So yeah, you're reading along in Romans 16, and at first it might feel like this verse is jarring and comes out of nowhere, but then you stop and think about what leads up to it. And it makes sense after all. These are reassuring words for them and for us as we think about the world that we live in. The God of peace will soon cross Satan under your feet. Now, in order to grasp this, to unpack this, let's reflect upon these four aspects of what Paul is saying here in this one sentence. The first is who, who God is. The second is what, what God's going to do. The third is where, where is God going to do it? And the fourth is when, when is he going to do it? Who, what, where, when, who God is, what he's going to do, where he's going to do it, when he's going to do it. All right, so first of all, we learn here from Paul who God is. What is he called here? What is he named here? He's named the God of peace. The God of peace. And remember, in the Bible, there is more to peace than the absence of conflict. It's not just still waters. There's more to it than that. It's richer. It's fuller. It's more wonderful than that. Peace isn't just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of something. It's the presence of fullness of relationship. Above all, relationship with God himself. But then also a fullness of relationship with his people. And because all of that's true, therefore you have a sense of satisfaction and contentment on the inside. All of that is the stuff of real peace. It may be the only Hebrew word that a lot of people know, the word shalom. And that's just what it means. It means peace with the idea of wholeness, fullness, completeness, so that nothing's lacking. So to say that God is the God of peace, that's to say that it's only in knowing God that you can really have peace. And it's also to say that it's only thanks to the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ that any sinner actually has peace. Paul says this in Colossians 1. He says, God was pleased through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, this is in Christ that this peace is to be found. And we receive that gift by faith. And so Paul says in Romans 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5. We've been forgiven. We've been accepted. We've been reconciled to God. We're no longer children of the wrath of God. And it's in that relationship, it's in that reconciliation to God that there's real fullness, wholeness, completeness to be found. That's peace. That's shalom. You've probably seen the bumper sticker that says, no justice, no peace. And you know how it goes on the bumper sticker. First, it's no N-O. The idea being that you can't have peace without it. And then it's no K-N-O-W, the idea that you certainly will have peace with it. 
Well, we can say something like that about God himself. N-O, no God, no peace. You cannot have peace without him. Not deeply, not truly, not really. But then we can say, K-N-O-W, no God, no peace. You certainly will have peace, the real thing, with him and in him in relationship to him. And that means knowing God according to the revelation that he's actually made of himself. Not making up a God of your own preference, but knowing him according to his word. And it means knowing God in and through Jesus Christ. K-N-O-W. Know God like that. Know him according to his word. Know him through faith in Christ. And you will know him the way Paul knew him. And you'll learn to call him what God called him. And you will love the sound of that name, the God of peace. That's who he is. So that's first. Now here's our second, which is the what. What is God going to do? And the answer, according to Paul here, is he's going to crush Satan. The conjunction of those two phrases, the God of peace will crush Satan, that makes this one of the most remarkable verses in the whole of the Bible. How's that for peace? He's going to crush the evil one. Among sinful men and women, there's a so-called peace. There's a false peace. It's the peace of cowardice, which is no real peace at all. It's simply the absence of outward conflict that's the result of an unwillingness to take a stand. And if necessary, to strike a blow. That's not the case here. This one who is the God of peace is most willing in his perfect, holy, divine justice to strike a crushing blow against the evil one, and he will do it. And what's in view when Paul talks about the God of peace crushing Satan is finally what God's going to do on the last day, judgment day. That's not to say that God isn't at work now causing his word to go forth and fulfill his purposes. Yes, that's happening in this age, right now, on this day, in this room. That's going on in this age. Sinners are converted. Churches are planted. Temptations are resisted. Spiritual disasters are averted. Yes. But not all the time. There are temptations that are not resisted in this life. There are some spiritual disasters that are not averted in this age. So whatever victories we experience in this life, intermingled with defeats and tears, all of that is pointing us forward to the capital V victory that awaits on the last day, to the day of the full and final crushing of Satan. What's God going to do on that day? To the devil. Well, he's not going to obliterate him so that he doesn't exist anymore. When Paul says he's going to crush him, what he means is that he's going to judge him. And I mean judge him in the fullest biblical sense. Hauled before a watching universe. Deeds exposed. Deeds condemned. Sentence pronounced. 
sentence inaugurated, and it will come to a head in what is described, chillingly, in the book of Revelation. Near the end of that book, Revelation 20, it says this, The devil who had deceived was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and there he will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. It's Romans 20. That will be his crushing. And that will be, that at the very end of the Bible, will be the fulfillment of what was spoken by God as a promise almost at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall. And God is pronouncing these words of curse and yet mixed into these words of curse are meanings of blessing and salvation. Genesis 3.15 says this, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. And on the last day, that'll come true. The seed of the woman, who's also the incarnate son of God, he's going to throw Satan into everlasting judgment. Crushed. That's what it means. And the one wonderful irony here, again, this, this striking bringing together of peace and crushing judgment, everlasting judgment, It's by crushing him like that that God will fully and finally be bringing about real peace for his people. Strange as it sounds, crushing Satan is something that God has to do if he's going to show himself in the end to be worthy of the name God of peace. If he never crushes Satan in the sense of judging him like I was just describing, well then he's not really the God of peace. He has to do it. In his time, but it's got to be someday. So long as Satan remains uncrushed, unjudged, still on the loose, still at work, still seeking to devour, so long as that's still true, then there is something incomplete about our peace. Brings us back to that bumper sticker. It's true to say, N-O, no justice, no peace. And it's the Christian who really gets that. Because it's the Christian who understands what ultimate justice requires, and among other things, what it requires is the crushing of the evil one. But then we can also say, K-N-O-W, no justice, no peace. When Christ comes back and that justice is meted out so that Satan himself is crushed, then will dawn the reign of everlasting peace. And John tells us about it at the very end of the Bible. This beautiful picture of shalom. This is from Revelation 22. And by the way, I read these words just a few days ago to Cheryl's mother. At her bedside. 
And that was less than 24 hours before she closed her eyes and entered her rest. So this would have been one of the last things she heard. These words from Revelation 22. John describes it. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer... And think about this against the backdrop of God crushing Satan. John says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, that is shalom. That is everlasting peace. And you notice what John said in there. He said, no longer will there be anything accursed. In other words, when it comes to the world to come, he won't be there. Satan won't belong to that world. He will have been crushed. He will have been judged. He will have been cast out. He won't be there. And so you know what else is wonderfully absent of that description of the world to come? Well, divisions among the people of God. None of those. Or obstacles contrary to the truth. Or servants of self. Smooth talk, flattery, deception. In other words, all of those things that Paul mentioned in Romans 16, all of those things that he felt the need to warn them about, all of those satanic works in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, gone, all of them, in that world of peace. All of that, all of those dreadful realities will have been crushed along with the one who fathered it from the beginning. And that's what will make that new world to be a world of true shalom for the people of God. When he crushes Satan, the God of peace will be making peace for us, and it will be a peace like we've never known. That is what God is going to do. Now here's third, which is where? Where is he going to do this? Well, Paul uses the phrase here in our verse, in our sentence, under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, when Paul says under your feet, this is not necessarily a literal where. The Bible does not go into detail about the logistics of final judgment. And it wouldn't be fair for us as Bible readers, to expect that it would. We're not given precise details about where people are going to be and how it's all going to be set up and how it's all going to unfold. The language of under your feet is an image that at least communicates this much. When Satan is judged, brothers and sisters, we will be right there to watch it happen. And we will add our amen. As it's happening, 
And we will do so knowing that it's our victory too. Yes, a victory for the purposes of God. Yes, the the triumph, the vindication of the Son of God. And also our victory as well. We'll be right there. We'll add our approving amen. And it will be for us. You get a glimpse of of what this means back in the Old Testament. In a, a, a Bible story in Joshua 10. Joshua chapter 10. Israel has just won this great victory over an enemy army. An army of five nations. Joshua has led the people to victory after Moses. And after that victory... The five kings of those nations are brought out in order to receive justice. This is what it says in Joshua 10. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord God will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death. It's Joshua 10. So Joshua has these enemy kings brought out to receive justice. And Joshua doesn't say, I'm going to put my feet on their neck. Joshua says to those who have served with him and under him, he says to them, you put your feet on their necks. You do it so that you can watch while I bring justice. It was the ultimate symbol of victory for the one side and crushing defeat for the other side. Joshua 10. That's why I read Psalm 110 for us earlier in our service. As I was saying, that psalm that is over and over again pointed to, referred to, quoted in the New Testament. Remember how that psalm begins. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, God is promising his Messiah. That day is going to come for you. A day is going to come when you put your foot on the neck of your enemy and carry out justice. And when he does... It will be for us. And we will be there and we will say amen. And that's what's going to happen when Satan is judged. It will be victory for Christ. It will be victory for us who belong to Christ. To borrow language that Paul uses in Acts when he's preaching the gospel, we can put it this way. When God does this, it will not happen in a corner. It it won't be tucked away, hidden from view. So that we only hear distant rumors and reports about it. Sometimes in the news that happens, right? We'll hear about the overthrow 
of some awful tyrant somewhere in the world. Years ago, it was reported in the news that Saddam Hussein had been hanged. Years ago, reported that Gaddafi had been killed. But, you know, it's not quite clear at first how it happened. We're literally thousands of miles away from stories like those and others. Happened in some other part of the world. Sometimes it happens to some tyrant who had little or no impact on our lives here. Sometimes it happens to a tyrant that nobody's never really heard of before. A name that nobody's ever heard. It's not going to be like that when the God of peace crushes Satan. It's not going to be a rumor or a news report about something that happened far, far away. It's not going to be the crushing of a tyrant whose tyranny had little or no impact on us. And it's certainly not going to be somebody that we never heard of. We know his name. And he has troubled us. As Paul says, we are not unaware of his schemes. And we will watch it happen. Under our feet. That's where. And that brings us to the fourth of our four. We've done who and what and where. And that brings us to the fourth, which is when. When is God going to do it? Well, what does Paul say here in our sentence? He says God's going to do it soon. The God of peace will Soon, crush Satan under your feet. Now, obviously, almost 2,000 years have passed since Paul wrote that. But it was true then, and it is still true today. It's just a certain kind of soon. It's not necessarily tomorrow on the calendar soon. It's not necessarily 2024 soon as we're about to turn the calendar to a new year. Instead, it's against the backdrop of eternity soon. It's, you get it if you know the eternal God soon. Think about what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. He says, people mock this, people scoff at this. He says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says, we all know there are scoffers like that. There are mockers like that. And Peter has an answer for them. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And it's in light of that, it's knowing that God, that we understand the word soon. In the book of Revelation, John gives us another picture of martyrs who are in heaven now. Those who were put to death for Christ. Revelation 6, John describes these martyrs in heaven, in heaven, mind you. 
as crying out for justice. Not out of a sense of pain or uncertainty. They're in heaven. But they are still crying out for the justice that remains in order for full peace to be realized. This is Revelation 6. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So there they are in heaven crying out. And the question is a time question. It's a chronology question. It's a history question. How long? And then it says this. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Just a little longer. It will be soon. And when it happens against the backdrop of eternity... As those who know the eternal God, then we will realize just how soon it was. This is how the Bible ends. The last two verses of the Bible, I suppose this is fitting on the last day of the year. This is the very end of the whole Bible. Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely... I am coming soon. And then it says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That's the very end of the Bible. The seed of the woman says, in effect, I will come and I will crush him soon. And we say back to the one who has said it, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Romans 16.20. That's our verse this morning. I said last week that uh, that verse in 1 John... Might make for a slightly unexpected Christmas card. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Merry Christmas. Well, we can say the same sort of thing this week about Romans 16, verse 20. This sentence would make an interesting New Year's verse. There you are at the office holiday party. Around the punch bowl. You're asked, what are you looking forward to? The dawn of the new year. You reply, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. The God of peace is going to crush Satan under my feet and he's going to do it soon. How about you? He says, well, I was thinking more along the lines of a cruise with my wife. Apparently you you have a rather different set of expectations. (laughs) Probably not a good idea to drop that at the holiday party. But the question is not, are you going to drop this on strangers at parties? The question is, do you believe it? Especially the last day of the year, tomorrow's the first day of the next year. And sure, we're mindful of the passage of time. And where time is going, where our lives are going. Where our own sense of peace 
is going. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet? And it might help to think about each of our four points today. Is there any one of them that you struggle with in particular that you need to reflect upon and to pray over, to meditate on, to chew on? Is it that your God is the God of peace? Understanding peace as fully as the Bible would have you? Is it that a day of crushing is coming? Just, holy, crushing of the evil one? Is it the thought that you'll be there to see it, to approve of it, to rejoice in it? Or maybe it's that last one. Maybe at the tail end of another calendar year, You're so worn out and exhausted and perhaps discouraged that it's hard to believe soon anymore. Brothers and sisters, this should be one aspect of what you're looking forward to as time passes. Not necessarily because it's promised to happen in the next calendar year, but deep down this ought to be your longing at the beginning of another year, that your gaze toward the future transcends and reaches beyond whatever might be on the family calendar for the year to come, and even the things that you cannot anticipate. What is it that you're ultimately looking forward to? Part of it has to be the crushing of Satan at the end of this age. Brothers and sisters, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, under your feet. Jesus himself says, I am coming soon to do just that. And we answer, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and call you the conqueror, the victor, the great one, the triumphant one. And we know that you have gained the victory on our behalf. And we know that that victory is being worked out according to God's good time and way. We know a day is coming when the God of peace, the God of peace, will crush Satan under our feet. And we know it's coming soon. So we pray even this day as we worship, as we sing, as we feast, that you would renew our hope for the day to come, for the year to come, for as many days as you are pleased to grant us. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.